Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Known as a disaster avoidance expert, Dr. Gleb Sapersky is on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases, which devastate bottom lines and bring down high-flying careers. His expertise and passion is developing the most effective and profitable decision-making strategies based on pragmatic business experience and cutting edge behavioral economics and cognitive neuroscience to empower leaders to avoid business disasters and maximize their bottom lines. A best-selling author, he wrote, never go with your gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. The Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide, and the blind spots between us, how to overcome unconscious cognitive bias and build better relationships. He is a cutting edge thought leader and has shared his expertise on over 400 articles and 300 interviews, including on CBS News, Time, Scientific American, Psychology Today, The Conversation, Business Insider, Chronicle of Philanthropy, and more. Doctor, welcome to Get Up Nation. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate that kind introduction and I look forward to talking to you about these topics. Doctor, you were born in Moldova, is what I understand, and emigrated to the United States when you were 10 years old. Is that accurate? That's absolutely accurate. Well, that's what my parents decided to do. You know, I didn't have much of a choice in the matter. I was a kid, 10 years <laughs> old. But I'm very glad. I'm very glad that they came here, actually, especially in 1996. So I was born in 81. My parents left in 1991. And then in 1996, I was growing older. I was looked at the background of my heritage, cultural heritage. I found out in 1996 that there was a world values survey and Moldova was rated the least happy country in the world. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I, I was really glad that they left when, you know, that, that's pretty big out of 250 plus nations. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then so you came to the United States. It wasn't easy in those early times and, and you've gone on to become extremely successful. Will you share some of the adversity you experienced during that time and how it impacted your view of the world? I had a number of elements of adversity not simply necessarily related to immigration. So, for example, my view of the world and the work that I came to do on disaster avoidance was really formed from my family and the kind of decisions that they made. My mom, for example, she liked to buy nice clothing. So she'd go out and she'd buy a $100 sweater. And, you know, remember, we're immigrants. It was not easy and to buy a $100 sweater. So my dad, and he was already kind of a cheapskate, you know, he'd yell at her and say, no sweater should be worth $20. You know, you can get nice sweaters at a thrift store for that much. So they had, and then they got out, went at it and bring up past hurts, conflicts, tensions, and so on. 
And I seeing that that already impacted me as a kid, both seeing my parents fighting. I mean, that's never good. But also more broadly, I just saw that their words, their hurts, their pains, the emotional suffering that they went through didn't really change anything. My mom kept buying nice clothing. My dad kept yelling at her and they had they kept having these conflicts and disagreements. So that helped me realize that they made bad decisions about finances and relationships. And you know, those are two of my books, Never Go With Your Gut, is about business decision-making, financial decision-making, career decision-making. The Blind Spots Between Us is about relationships. They make pretty bad decisions about relationships and finances. And nobody sat me down, I realized, and said, hey, kiddo, here's how you make good decisions and here's how you made bad ones. I was hoping I'd get taught that in high school, but you know, nobody taught me that in high school. There wasn't a course on good decision-making, whether in your career or anywhere else. Then, as I was growing up, so around that time I was going to college, finishing high school, that was, so I was 18 in 1999, because I was born in 81, so 18 in 1999, when the tech leaders were partying like it's 1999, for those who remember that Prince song. <laughs> and then just a couple of years later, all of these companies that were very popular, Webvan, Pets.com, Boot.com, they all went bust. And so I was seeing the tech leaders who were heroes in the Wall Street Journal in 1999 be the zeros in 2002, 2001. And that helped me realize that even the titans of industry made pretty terrible decisions. And of course, our political leaders around that time were making some pretty terrible decisions. Don't need to go there. And, that, and I was going to college and you know, nobody taught me how to make good decisions in college either. You know, I know that that's not taught in business school. So I decided to study this topic myself. I decided to study how do we make good decisions? How do we make bad ones? And I, so I studied this. I started, as I started learning more and knowing more about this, people started coming to ask me about it. That's how I became a trainer, consultant, and coach. And I've been doing that for over 20 years on decision-making, risk management, strategic planning. And at the same time, I realized there was very little quality literature out there on how to make good decisions. So I had to go into academia and read very dense, very boring journal articles, you know, <laughs> many, many thousands of these academic publications in order to look at how do, does our brain actually cause us to make decisions. And I found out that the typical advice to go with your gut, follow your intuitions, follow your heart, that's all bullcrap. That really does not work well at all. And we can talk about why, but it's really a bad idea. That's why one of my books is called Never Go With Your Gut. And so that's why we want to make good decisions, figure out how to not make bad ones. And I studied that. And that's my topic of expertise. So, so I spent 15 years in academia looking at that. And my work, body of work, the books and so on are a result of that combination of pragmatic consulting, coaching and training with over 15 years in academia in neuroscience and behavioral economics. I love that. I love that you took something. I mean, all of these educational opportunities had given you, you know, information or taught you about facts or taught you about certain things, but it seems like a very vital concept that largely was neglected. You innovated and you focused on this topic that can really coordinate us understanding that information in a successful way. And it seems like this context where largely people are getting tons of information, but they're not able to formulate it in a way that makes it helpful to people. And you have saved countless people from making tremendously awful decisions who were college educated, I'm sure, who were successful in all sorts of academic pursuits. But largely, we, we miss out some of the context on how we can use this information to our advantage. How exciting was that for you, this question that persisted through your educational 
experience. How exciting was that for you as you kind of came to realize that no one was going to teach that to you because no one was teaching it and then deciding to be the one that would? That has to be a very exciting moment to get to that point and then to really be engaged by then giving that gift. It's funny that you bring up exciting because that's not how I perceived it. I perceived it as distressing and frustrating and angering because, you know, this is stuff I wanted to know. And it was to me obvious that it was not being taught. And it was obvious to me that people were making bad decisions. And I was kept waiting, waiting, you know, for that magical moment when this would be taught, when this would be something I would learn. And so it was more out of a sense of frustration, anger, and a desire to prevent suffering for myself and for other people that I decided to do it because I was just seeing so many bad decisions, like I said, in my family, and there's plenty of other stories that I'm not willing to share publicly. <laughs> then, of course, in our society more broadly, as I mentioned, and of course, that, that also pushed me into this. So I guess it became exciting when I started, when I learned about it for myself, and when I started learning and seeing what were the bad decision-making patterns that I made. You know, you don't want to look at the mote in your neighbor's eye when you have a beam in your own eye, right? <laughs> you know, as the good book says. So what I found out about myself was very, it was very helpful for me, first of all. So it was incredibly helpful. We have a series of decision-making errors that we make just because of how our brain is wired. Now, our brain is not wired for the modern environment, is what I discovered. It's actually wired, that gut reaction, that are, those intuitions, they're wired for the savannah environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 to 150 people, and we had to have this strong fight-or-flight response, you know, jump at 100 shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. So we make very bad decisions, both responding to threats, because, you know, there are many less saber-toothed tigers in the modern environment. (laughs) That was great for intense in the moment, immediate threats, but pretty terrible for modern threats, which come, you know, from your, let's say you're getting a constructive critical email from your supervisor about, something you happen to do or fail to do. Or let's say you're, if you're a supervisor yourself, getting it from a client, an important client. Now, the immediate response to that is the fight or flight. Some people have more of the fight response, which means in this case, ignoring the information saying, hey, this email didn't happen, I'm going to ignore it, you know, unless they ping me a hundred times or something like that. That is not great response. Neither is the fight response, which is to write back and say, what are you talking about? I'm great. You're, you're wrong. I'm awesome. You're a jerk. That's the fight response. <laughs> Neither of those is the right response, whether you're dealing with your supervisor or an important client. What you need to do is look at what kind of activities in your own systems and processes and organization, what led to the outcome that the client or supervisor is concerned about. How can you fix these underlying problems that led to this outcome? Almost all of the problems that we experience are not a one-off. They're a systemic problem, and you need to fix fix them systemically. And then you need to, of course, calm down and appease the client or supervisor, tell them what you'll do differently. So the ruffled feathers, smooth those. That is a very difficult activity. You know, if you think about it, it's completely not intuitive. You have to learn it. That's what you need to do to survive and thrive in the modern workplace, whether as an entrepreneur dealing with leader, dealing with your clients, or as a worker dealing with your supervisor, but it's completely not intuitive. Neither is it intuitive. So that's kind of one of these sorts of notification, email threats that aren't life-threatening, but are career, you know, potentially endangering if you don't make the right decisions about them. That's one. Other type of threats that we don't deal with at all is slow-moving, high-impact threats, let's say like the COVID-19 pandemic. So many individuals, so many companies dealt with that 
pretty terribly. They are not aware of how to respond effectively to low probability, high impact, slow moving threats. We are completely not used to thinking and feeling that, hey, what's the right thing to do in this situation? We fall into a number of cognitive biases. One, for example, is called the cognitive biases that are specific decision-making errors we make because of how our brain is wired. One of them most relevant for COVID-19 is called the normalcy bias, where we tend to greatly underestimate the impact and the probability of our world changing due to major disruptors. We feel like tomorrow is going to be much like today, that next year is going to be much like the past year, and we greatly underestimate the way that the world actually changes much more quickly than we feel it does, and we change. If we, in the Savannah environment, of course, it was important for us to not think that the world changed will change because it didn't. It was mostly the same. So it, if somebody told us that, you know, hey, the world will be very different tomorrow, you should not believe them and you should reject that. So in the Savannah environment, that was the right instinct. In the modern environment, that's not the right instinct, whether because of technology disruptors, which change very quickly, because of biological disruptors like the pandemic, which obviously is bad, because of bad human idiocy like the fiscal crisis of 2008-2009. So all of those major disruptors cause very rapid change, and we greatly underestimate that change. And people are not prepared for it. They deal with it with a fight-or-flight response, whether go, you know, ignoring it, saying, oh, it's a hoax, didn't happen, whatever, not a problem, or running to the store and buying all the toilet paper. You know, the first is the flight response and the other is the fight response. Or businesses turning to their business continuity plans and using those. Now, I'm someone who made many business continuity plans, and they're great for a situation like a blizzard, or let's say when Houston got flooded. But this is not that. Houston got flooded, that's a one or two week interruption. Great for a business continuity plan. This is more like the COVID-19 is Houston got flooded and then stayed flooded. And you had to deal with the flood. You had to deal with a new normal or a new abnormal. As I talk about in my new book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. So this is something that we're not intuitively used to. And these are the really terrible decisions that we make as a result. Sure. Will you go into that a little more? You provide a number of lists of the different ways that we don't deal effectively with a challenge or an adversity. You talk some about loss aversion and a number of different concepts of what our brain does when we experience an adversity. What are you seeing now with COVID-19 and, and how can we be aware of our own behavior as we try to deal with this? So COVID-19, I mentioned one big one, the normalcy bias. That is one of the big ones. There are two other ones which I've seen people fall into, which are really bad, very problematic, really not great for individuals or businesses. One of them is called the planning fallacy. So the planning fallacy, it's when we tend to assume that our plans will go according to plan. We feel we are good people, great people, and we're confident about ourselves, and we're confident about our plans. Too confident when we don't pivot in a nearly timely enough manner. I still see a lot of businesses going with their emergency plans, their business continuity plans. Those are terrible things to be going with because those are meant for a one or two week disruption. You need to completely change the plan and figure out how to strategically survive in this new abnormal. But the most businesses have not, most individuals have not. They're still kind of going with that emergency mode and they'll burn out and they're suffering they're trying to rush back to normal, kind of as states are opening up. They're trying to get back. Okay, when can we go back to normal? Well, I, newsflash, we'll never go back to January 2020. Sorry, this is not the case. The problem is that 
when now that states are loosening restrictions, the cases of COVID-19 will shoot up. And what will happen as a result? Well, before medical systems are overwhelmed, there will be more restrictions. And we'll have waves of these restrictions and loosenings, restrictions and loosenings until we find a vaccine, which is how we'll deal with COVID-19. And vaccine, a very optimistic timeline for mass vaccination is by beginning of 2022. More realistically, it's going to be something like 23 or 24. That is, you know, dealing with COVID-19 through that period of time requires a fundamental transition to your business model, whether for individuals, your career, for businesses, their business model. So I'll talk about for businesses as an example. Businesses need to really focus on virtual teams, their internal collaboration. They need to switch that to all virtual and you know, overwhelmingly, I mean, manufacturing stuff has to have a plan, but their office workers should be all virtual and as much virtual as possible. And that's something I'm doing with my clients. And then their external service offerings, their external business model should be as much virtual as possible. There are six areas for change in their internal business model and six areas of change in the external business model. And I could talk those through. But though that's the kind of things that you want to be thinking about fundamentally transitioning to change the yourself. But people aren't doing that. They're being very short-term oriented. And that's another cognitive bias that I see very much harming Right, what people are doing right now called hyperbolic discounting, where they're discounting the future. That's what it's called, hyperbolic excessively discounting the future. So they're orienting towards short-term rewards, going out, opening up businesses, you know, just saying, yes, let's get back to you know normal. <laughs> well, like I said, that, that's a very problematic perspective because they're not thinking about the long term. There's a lot of polls where people are saying, oh, I think things will be back to normal by you know end of 2020 or beginning of 2021. And they're saying that in order for things to get back to normal, what really needs to happen is a vaccine. <laughs> and they're completely not realizing how those two perspectives are very contradictory because we won't have a vaccine until early 2022. So if they think things will go back to normal by end of 2020, and they also think that you need a vaccine in order for things to get back to normal, there's a clear mental disconnect. And that's one of the typical cognitive biases we fall into. It seems the mind, as it grapples with an adversity or something that makes us uncomfortable, I wanted to ask your opinion. You, you talk about mindfulness meditation in your books, and I wanted to just ask from your perspective, and you have a background in neuroscience as well, and as human beings try to grapple with an unbiased awareness of the present moment and the present challenge. And then we're trying to navigate, as you also mentioned in another one of your books, talking about the truth seeker and figuring out what is the true information that we're being fed. We have a number of media organizations that are run by businesses. We have a number of political leaders with agendas that they're trying to put forward. And so we're always hungering for a greater understanding of the truth and also coming to accept the reality of the present moment and what we're facing, the challenges we're facing while our brains are trying to sabotage us in these ways where where it takes us off the mark. What are some of the approaches to get to that place where we are finding solid information, coping with the present moment and what's being offered to us and having a moment of peace or a moment of calm ability to deal with these challenges without sabotaging ourselves? That's a very difficult thing to do because most people aren't trained and they don't even know that this is a problem. You know, the first step of knowing of dealing with a problem is knowing it's a problem. I'll give a comparative example. So from another area, 
in the savanna environment was very important for us to, when we came across a source of sugar, eat as much sugar as possible. Honey, bananas, apples. In the modern environment, that's still the temptation. When we come across a source of sugar, you know, when you have a, the box of dozen donuts, it's very tempting to eat the donuts, you know, lots of them, maybe the whole box. When you have a gallon of ice cream, you know, it says the serving is a cup. Yeah, right. Sure. Who's going to eat a cup of ice cream, right? <laughs> you know, you start eating that, you start eating the ice cream. But pretty soon, you know, without you noticing it, half the gallon is gone. Not that I ever did it myself, right? <laughs> so that is something that where you are trying to address your temptation to eat as much sugar as possible, that's you going against your instincts for physical fitness. And hopefully, most of the listeners of this podcast have learned that it's a bad idea to eat all the donuts, you know, the box of dozen donuts, or to eat a gallon of ice cream at a time, even though it's very tempting to do so. It's a bad idea. And that's physical fitness. You ensuring, you protecting your physical fitness is when you try to, instead of eating donuts, you know, eat a bowl of fruit or not buy ice cream or only have it out when you go for you know ice cream in the summer, get a cone of ice cream, right? Not have it in the house. There are various techniques which you can use, effective research-based techniques that you can use to address the problem of how to have a healthy diet, how to have physical fitness. But the, and people are aware of this and they do this mostly. <laughs> we, not everyone. We still have the obesity epidemic here in the U.S. Now, we are unfortunately are not doing the same thing which we very much need to do for mental fitness. Mental fitness is, of course, the discipline, the art and the science of how do you make good decisions? How do you build up mental discipline? How do you make sure that you don't let your cognitive biases, which we all have, (laughs) screw up your decision-making processes? It's a hard thing to do, not easy, but it's very important. And like you said, there are techniques to do that. So mindfulness meditation is one of the techniques why that's important there are two areas where that's important so one of them is let's you know comparing it to the eating ice cream you're building up your focus so when you have a bowl of ice cream in front of you when you have a gallon of ice cream in front of you one way to prevent yourself from eating the ice cream is to in a disciplined focused manner choose to not start eating the ice cream which is ideal or maybe you know Take a cup and then put a, the rest far away in the back of the fridge, you know, in the chest, in the free ice chest downstairs and lock it with a key lock, right? <laughs> so that <laughs> takes focus, that takes discipline, that takes mental willpower. And mindfulness meditation helps build that up. When you're sitting there just focusing on your breathing, then that takes focus. So you're training yourself. You're, that's mental discipline. That is one of the aspects that you want to build up focus. The other thing that mindfulness meditation builds up is comfort with discomfort. Now, when you're doing, I mean, I do 10 minutes of meditation a day at least, and various other meditative practices, yoga and so on. When you're sitting there and, you know, you know sitting there crossing your feet, just focusing on your breathing or focusing on emptying your mind, that's not a comfortable activity. It's both physically and mentally uncomfortable. So that's something that you have to get used to and you're learning to deal with discomfort. Similarly, it's very uncomfortable for us to deal and it takes a lot of focus to deal with information that we don't like. We have a number of cognitive biases around this. One is called the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. You know, if you want to find out, let's say, COVID-19, let's say, if you think, is COVID-19 a hoax? Or let's say you think COVID-19 is a hoax and you say, 
why COVID-19 is a hoax, you type that into Google. What kind of results will Google get you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> that, the results, the question begs the answer. And so the Google will give you the results that it thinks that you're looking for. So that's the looking for information that confirms your beliefs. Ignoring information that, that fits against your beliefs is when you, you know, shut your ears and put, put your fingers in your ears, say, la, 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 I can't hear you when somebody disagrees with you. Those are very tempting things to do. I see them in business all the time. You know, there was an interesting study done a few years ago on over 1,087 board members of companies, board, so boards of directors that fired their CEOs. And one of the top five reasons that they fired their CEOs, so 23% of the CEOs were fired for denialism, meaning denying negative facts about the company's performance. And that's understandable. When the CEOs are, feel confident about themselves, they feel optimistic about themselves, about the company they run, they tend to reject negative information about it. And they say, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, just like the Boeing leadership rejected it plenty of information from within the company saying that, hey, this new 737 model may not be very safe, might, you know, might want to check it out, you know, might not want to cut corners in the FDA approval process. Well, they ignored that information. They thought that, hey, you know, we've had every previous model uh, that we put out was safer than the last. Therefore, this new model should be safer than all the others. And they ignored all negative information. That, that's confirmation bias. And the other one where you specifically ignore negative information, deny negative information about reality. You know, that's like an ostrich sticking your head into the sand. It's called the ostrich effect. These are really big problems for us. In order to deal with them, we have to develop not simply a tolerance for discomfort, but a love for discomfort, a love for taking an alternative perspective, really focusing on figuring out information that goes against our beliefs. That is fundamentally important. How do you Take the steps, and there are a number of steps, processes I talk about in my books. Never Go With Your Gut, for example, talks about five questions you should ask to not screw up any daily decision and eight steps that you need to take to not screw up any major decision, make that as good as possible. Those steps, one of the steps of all of these is figuring out information that goes against your beliefs, that goes against your intuitions, that goes against your preferences, because that information, and weighing that more heavily, that information is information that is inherently uncomfortable. It takes focus and discipline to deal with that information, but that's the information that you need in order to make the best possible decision. If you can prove yourself wrong, you need to start believing that that's a wonderful thing, because then you can have more right decisions. If you can prove that your original intention was wrong, that's a great thing. And it's hard to believe that. It's hard to accept that our gut reaction doesn't want us to be wrong. It doesn't want us to admit that we are wrong to ourselves, that our preferred choice is the wrong choice. And it takes a lot of emotional investment. You know, our e emotions are fundamentally important for determining our decisions. 80 to 90% of our decisions come from our emotions. So what we need to do is we need to retrain our emotions. We need to develop a love for discomfort, a love for being wrong. And these are hard things to do if you don't even know that you need to do them. But if you know that you need to do them, it just takes some patience and willpower and discipline to build up mental fitness. But the mind, your mind, is the most important muscle. It's the most important thing you have in this world. Where, you know, The body used to be more important maybe 50 years ago when we were mostly physical workers and so on. But right now, the mind is the most important thing with the information revolution. And if you don't train your mind, if you don't develop mental fitness, you will not be the person who survives and thrives in the modern environment.
As you share all of your expertise here with people, with individuals and organizations, how does it help them develop a sustained resilience? What it helps them do is it helps them develop clear systems and processes that provide guidelines that prevent poor decisions and improve good decisions. So if you think about what is resilience, resilience is the ability to address problems prevent problems, ideally in the first place, bounce back from problems and address problems going forward. So that's kind of resiliency. That's that's what you want to think about. One of the ways of doing that, of course, is preventing problems in the first place. A lot of my work has to do with that. I'm a disaster avoidance expert. So try to avoid disasters in the first place. That gives you much better resiliency for unexpected events that will definitely come about. You can't control for everything. You can't prevent everything. But if you can prevent a lot of the problems, then you'll be much more better prepared to deal with whatever does random events that do come up. That's one. Second, when an event happens, when disaster happens, how do you respond to it effectively in such a way that you don't exacerbate the disaster? A lot of the problems that people experience don't come from the problem, don't come from the initial cause, but from the response to it. So for example, consider the Equifax data breach. So Equifax data breach, around 170 million people's information was breached, including my information, unfortunately. So, you know, part of that 170 million. What Equifax did, so first of all, there were a lot of problems in the original breach. Equifax had the federal government investigative authorities found that they knew about the data insecurity, the data problems, their programming problems, software problems that led to the breach, but they didn't fix it in a timely manner when they should have according to federal regulations. So they already that was a, a you know problem obviously in their behavior, the data breach. But the biggest problem, the biggest huge problem by far was that they data breach happened in March and they found out about it in May. And then they kept it quiet, kept it covered, kept it on the down low until late August. So people's information was out there being sold by hackers for three months, three to four months, when people could have just put a freeze on their credit card if if Equifax immediately went ahead and said, you know, hey, there's a data breach, you should put a freeze on your credit card and so on. Well, the response was the worst thing. There was terrible response by Equifax trying to hide it, trying to pretend it never happened. And of course, it was eventually found out, you know, in three months in August. And so as a result, the Equifax had a lot of problems, a lot of lawsuits. The CEO was fired, other top leaders were fired, and the Equifax lost a lot of credibility, lost a lot of money in its market capitalization, all because of their poor response to the disaster. So the strategies that I talk about, one of the things, aspects is preventing, but the other is dealing effectively. How do you deal effectively with a disaster once it occurs to not enable it to you know, turn into turn a snowball into an avalanche, but instead to address it in the most effective manner possible, minimize the damage, and see if there are some opportunities that you can see, at least lessons that you can learn for the future. So many companies, so many people don't focus on learning lessons for the future from current disasters and current catastrophes. And I think that's one of the biggest losses that I see companies suffer when they keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over again without learning from it. And that's, it can be pretty terrible. Doctor, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today to hear your insights into this and to expose my audience to your ability to help us make better decisions. I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Of course, happy to. 
Who are you thankful for today? Oh, I'm very thankful for my wife. She is my not only the love of my life, but also my business partner. And we collaborate, you know, we spend 24-7 together. I don't know how she didn't kill me yet, <laughs> but I'm very thankful for her. She's the most important person in my life by far. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? You know, I'm thankful for current digital technology because with COVID-19, a lot of my money, a lot of my work comes from speaking, training, coaching, consulting. And of course, I wouldn't have been able to do it without modern technology. And I'm very thankful right now due to COVID-19. And so I'm very thankful for things like Zoom and other services that I use, Trello, that enable me both to collaborate with my internal team. So I run a six-people company, Disaster Voids Experts, consulting, coaching, and training. That's my internal team. But then also providing the services to my clients that virtually, which I've transformed everything into virtual, that's something I'm, I noticed that I'm really grateful for. How do you fuel the fire within you? I fuel the fire within me by having good life work balance, work-life balance. So I do things like, let's say, in the summer, in the spring, and so on. I spend a lot of time gardening. I take a lot of breaks. I play tennis. I spend time with my wife because I already internally very motivated. I was motivated from my childhood, and I shared that, when I saw people suffering and making really bad decisions. My value set is utilitarian, meaning wanting the, the best for the most people. So that's the, how was something that really fundamentally motivates me. And it's very easy for me to overwork and burn out. And I've had that happen before where I was burning out. I needed to go to a psychiatrist, therapist, take a psychiatric medications. It was really bad for a while. So I've learned since that time that what I need to do in order to run my life at a marathon, not a sprint, is to have good work-life balance. So that's been very helpful. Excellent. And what is one thing adversity taught you to value? Adversity taught me to value gratitude. So I've been really, in times of adversity, in times of challenge, in times of struggle, it has been my focus on what I can control and what I'm really grateful for in life. You know, the only things in life we can really control, and only to some extent, are our thoughts, our behaviors and our feelings, our emotions. Those are the only realistically things that we can control, nothing else. You know? So that understanding that that's what I can control and being grateful for what I can control and what is still under my influence, that has been really helpful for me in times of adversity because it shifted my focus from things I'm frustrated and angry and upset about to empowering things, things that I can influence and the next steps I can take in order to improve myself and my life and whatever I'm doing. Love that. What are you doing today? You may have never thought you could. Well, I already talked about technology. You know, <laughs> I really didn't. Before COVID-19, I did not think that I can bring, you know, pretty much 100% of my business to technology. So that's definitely something that I think about. Another thing that I, I really didn't think about was how I can effectively interact with people socially. So I'm very used to socially interacting with people just face-to-face. -face. That's very engaging. And I've really learned that a lot of that can be replaced by virtual interaction. I just had a you know virtual game night, and it, it was weird. But it's you know it's like okay, yes, I, I this this can be done. I can see myself doing this for the next three four years. <laughs> <laughs> and then what will you do tomorrow? You may have never thought you could. Well, I guess that's a question for tomorrow, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know something I'm thinking about doing. So I'm working with a with a client, and we're trying to figure out how to do a consulting project remotely. And that's not something I've ever done, uh, consulting. I've, of course, I did plenty of remote coaching, but consulting involves a lot of 
interactions, a lot of complexity that I've always done just being there and being in the client space in the company. So I'm really curious and interested to see how it will work out to try to do a consulting project remotely. Hopefully it will work out. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Doctor, how can people learn more about you and your amazing work? Well, they can check out my books, which you mentioned before, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Bias to Build Better Relationships, The Truth Seekers Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, and Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. Really, wherever books are sold, you know, bookstores might be closed around you. So check them out on Amazon, Barnes Noble, any other bookstores, wherever you get your books, published by great traditional publishers. So you'll enjoy that. Then you can check out my resources on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. You want to especially check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video based module course on making the wisest decisions and an assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace, those cognitive biases I mentioned. That's disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. And finally, I'm very available on LinkedIn. So if you want to connect with me, ask any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, please do so there. Dr. Gleb Sipurski on LinkedIn, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Excellent. Doctor, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure today. I hope you have a rejuvenating and relaxing weekend. <laughs>